Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is the Kincaid and Breckenridge Highlight Podcast. Uh, today we talked to the Rocky Mountain Civil Liberties Association about the fallout. Uh, most notably, Bishop Fred Henry has opened letter to the Alberta government uh, calling out what he describes as totalitarianism. And I guess guess we've got the uh, seeds for a feud now between uh, certain school boards and the Alberta government that is not imposing but suggesting some best practices and guidelines. Indeed. Uh, We also talked about Sesame Street and the nostalgia aspect of Sesame Street. Is it going to change? Do people want it to change now that it's uh, moved over to HBO? You can listen to Kincaid and Breckenridge weekdays, 930 to 1230, right here on News Talk 770. Welcome back. Dying to play this Donald Trump song, Rob. I'm willing to kibosh the whole rest of the show till we play this Donald Trump song. I, I, I didn't think it was real at first. I thought it was some kind of elaborate uh, skit or a parody or something. But uh... I feel like if we just played the Donald Trump song for the rest of the morning, people would like that. When freedom brings into the call on your feet, stand up tall. People love that. Don't you feel better already? It's it's uh, it's an inspiring song. All right. Maybe there's more uh, important things to get. A lot of people talking about uh, Donald Trump this morning. There was also that uh, Republican debate last night where he actually got booed at one point. Uh, him and Ted Cruz, Calgary boy Ted Cruz, really got into it last night about the whole Calgary thing. And uh, I don't know. Cruz had a pretty good uh, response to it all. And, and it was weird because then Donald Trump basically admitted in the debate that, yeah, he's been bringing it up because because Cruz is up in the polls. <laughs> so it's, I don't know. It's 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 weird. It's it's uh, weird indeed. We'll we'll probably get to that. But like uh, like we say, there are some more important issues to get to on the program today. Not the least of which is uh, I wouldn't call it a firestorm yet, but there's certainly a tempest brewing here as far as uh, Education Minister David Egan's guidelines and best practices for inclusive and safe spaces in schools goes. Yeah, which dovetails off Bill 10 and, and making Bill 10 a reality and what that means now for schools going forward and not just allowing uh, GSA to be created, but but creating that that safe space, those welcoming that, that welcoming environment. Now, Bishop Fred Henry releasing an open letter where he lays into the Alberta government uh, claims that this is an attack on freedom of religion, an attack on Catholicism, that it's totalitarianism in Alberta, which is odd given that as the minister conceded, the, these are not mandatory guidelines. Uh, there are no consequences for not following them. So as you mentioned, Roger, we've we've put the uh, invitation out to Bishop Fred Henry to to come on this program and and elaborate. But we'll get to our next guest here because the Rocky Mountain Civil Liberties Association, they held extensive consultations uh, in the lead up to to Bill 10 passing, put together a pretty extensive report. And they've responded to Bishop Henry's open letter to try to set the record straight on some of these things. Uh, Kelly Ernst is president of the Rocky Mountain Civil Liberties Association and joins us on the line here. Good morning, Kelly. Good morning. How are you? We're doing good. So what's drawn you back into this debate? Well, I guess um, what's drawn me back are some of the comments that Bishop Henry made in response to implementation of what would be Bill 10. So um, I guess um, 
the bishop still clearly does not understand what a, a gay-straight alliance um, is or the purpose of that and seems to be, in his letter of a couple of days ago, quite fearful of having these in, in schools in Alberta. So uh, what I wanted to do was make sure that um, some of his comments are um, clarified so that uh, the public, um, you know, doesn't, isn't left scratching their head going, well, you know, what is a, a gay-straight alliance and should we be afraid of a uh, gay-straight alliance in any school in Alberta? Um, because I think once you clarify what a gay-straight alliance is, it really is no longer a scary thing. Well, yeah, there certainly have been uh, these fear-mongering insinuations that a gay-straight alliance or a, or a queer-straight alliance is uh, a gay club where kids learn how to become homosexuals. And I mean, that's like one of the most extreme versions of it, and I think it smacks yeah. of absurdity to most who hear it. Um, but, but, but answer me this, because the Civil Liberties Association uh, probably has an idea or at least a position on, you know, what the confluence of tolerance and... GSA. So how, how should a GSA exist in a, a Catholic education environment so that everyone is comfortable? Do you know what I'm asking? Yeah, well, I, I think um, one of the things that our hearing process did uh, about a year ago is we actually heard from Catholic students um, arguing that gay-straight alliances ought to be um, held in Catholic schools. And they gave very strong arguments why this should be and how it should occur. And I think your earlier comment that, you know, we, we shouldn't be fear-mongering about um, the, these types of clubs is really true. Because what these students basically said is that there's ongoing abuse going on in Alberta schools, and that needs to end. And there needs to be some support for students receiving that type of bullying. So so these clubs, you know, like any other club, so a knitting club or a math club or a, you know, debating club, uh, needs, to be, needs to be set up in schools um, on a voluntary basis so that there's some support for the students that are receiving some of that uh, bullying or abuse. That That's what these clubs are about. The, the other really important thing that the students said about these clubs is they wanted them to be voluntary. So they don't they didn't want to set up clubs in schools that are mandated that everyone must attend. What they wanted to do was have the option to have a, a club like this in their school if they're needed. If they're not needed, the school doesn't need it. If they are needed, then, you know, please, they wanted help setting up these um, particular clubs and running them. But then the people that uh, attend the clubs, it's completely voluntary to attend so, so so when you think of the clubs in that way um, and you think of the purpose that they're there to support students that are receiving bullying and and you know other types of um, abuse um, then they become a much less fearful kind of a club well, and, and I guess it's not just the GSAs. I mean, certainly Bishop's Hen- Bishop Henry's letter refers to GSA specifically, but, but there are other aspects of this. I mean, whether or not a, a Catholic school has a GSA, for example, under these guidelines, there's still an obligation uh, that they accommodate, for example, transgender students. I, I think what the bishop's saying here is that, you know, you take those expectations, you take the expectation that, that GSAs be there, that, that what's being imposed on Catholic schools is a view of human sexuality and sexual orientation that goes against Catholic teachings. 
Well, that's up to up for debate, actually. And and one of the things that I had to do um, as chair of these committees is to look into, you know, what um, the Catholic Church worldwide is saying about some of these issues. And the view of Bishop Henry isn't necessarily the view of all of the different bishops around the world, nor the Pope. Um, indeed, the Pope, I believe, has a, a book that's out at the moment, and he's even questioning this whole idea of having a real fundamentalist approach. So, so really, that's a debate up for the Church, and mm-hmm. I think that debate is and ongoing in the church and what we're not talking about is you know whether or not we should be implementing these policies within a church we're talking about implementing these policies uh, in public schools in all schools across Alberta so when our public tax dollars pay for public schools you would expect that the policy of Alberta education is being implemented in all public schools that's really more the core of the debate is, you know, how do we uh, implement um, public um, policy in public schools across all schools in Alberta um, to have some consistency across all schools. Now, if that conflicts with the teaching of the Catholic Church, I think the way this is set up um, is really quite smart because it does not say that Bishop Henry or any of his followers cannot teach what they want regarding human sexuality in their schools. Um, In fact, it's just the opposite, that they are certainly open to um, doing that and, you know, having a policy of respect um, of all students in schools does not conflict with um, what they're able to teach or not teach. You know, Rob, I went to St. Mary's Catholic High School here in Calgary. I had a teacher who was divorced. Did I ever tell you that? They condoned that. It was the wildest thing that they condoned that teacher's lifestyle. Anyway, back to this interview. Kelly, and I want to get to that that taxation, that funding piece, uh, probably more in-depth when we go to open phones, Rob, because that to me is where the, the buck stops. But, Kelly, something that you said about how um, you know the Catholic Church worldwide we're seeing has is a varied opinion on this matter. I wonder if that is even the point. It seems to me that Bishop Fred Henry, at least as far as uh, certain Catholic school districts are concerned, is where the buck stops. He's the cork in the bottle. Nothing gets past him in either direction. So, I mean, like, do, do you see what I mean? Is, is it is it a case where we have one individual who is effectively shaping policy for all of these publicly funded school boards in the province? Well, I wondered the same thing, actually, and, and I guess that's some of my comments on, on our blog is, you know, Bishop Henry is certainly welcome to his opinion, and he can state his opinion, um, but that doesn't mean to say his opinion is always correct. And I, I think that's a really important point. Um, and um, the public policy that goes on um, and is implemented across Alberta, I think, is, you know, up to Albertans and not just Bishop Henry. And Albertans clearly said a year ago in this whole process that they're not afraid of these types of respectful policies. Indeed, they wanted them in the schools. And uh, and I think that takes precedence over, um, you know, the, the opinion of one particular bishop. Um, the other thing I wanted to add about, you know, the, the comment of input and relativism that uh, Bishop Henry brings up and just kind of alludes to is Bishop Henry were, was invited on numerous occasions to come and speak and give the, 
you know, opinion of the Catholic Church at these hearings. And at every attempt of invitation, it was declined. We also, you know, invited the Archbishop and we invited, um, you know, we said, well, if if you're busy and you can't attend, um, send a representative of your office. And those were all declined as well. So, So really we had to rely on the voice of um, Catholics themselves, the people in the schools, the parents, the students, and uh, what they were clearly saying is that they wanted respectful policies and they wanted GSAs in their schools. Um, and um, they also clearly stated that on this particular issue, they thought Bishop Henry was wrong. You know, and further to that, and, and the point's been made, and we, we've certainly heard it as well from, from some people in our audience, um, that, that Catholic schools are Catholic, and, and parents should know that going in. The suggestion that somehow a parent with a, a child who's LGBTQ should send that child to a non-Catholic school, that, that those students shouldn't be in Catholic schools in, in the first place. Based on what you heard, and, and certainly some of the testimony you heard during the, these hearings, why does that argument not hold up? Well, first of all, even Catholic schools are public schools. So um, that I think you have to underline. They're public schools. So regardless of them being Catholic or not, they have to accept any student that wishes to attend that school in their community. A lot of the students that we heard from said, you know what? I like being in a Catholic school, and I want to continue doing that. I just want my school to have respectful policies. So they didn't want to leave the school. They they wanted to learn about Catholicism. They wanted to have that a part of their curriculum. But they also wanted these GSAs in schools, and they also wanted respectful policies that they didn't see um, was being offered at that moment by the Catholic diocese. So, so, so there's some pushback, I think, from you know the um, Catholics' own um, people, and and really again that goes back to a debate within their own church. And it's a debate that largely, I think, can occur outside of the public school system. Um, it certainly can be talked about within the school system, but but again, we have a public school system that I think needs to implement public policy, and that's really where the the bottom line is. If if we're paying um, Alberta education to offer a public school system to Alberta, then all schools within Alberta really need to follow that curriculum. And I suppose you know what it comes down to if if these schools don't want to follow Alberta education policies, they need to have a hard discussion about whether or not they want to be a part of that. So there is that option as well. Well, yeah, there it is again. And I wonder if that's what the controversy is is built upon, is the fact that the funding model is is universal, right? So if, if we did have a mechanism in place or we did have the the intestinal fortitude to go ahead and break the mold and say, if you want to have religious education, you can fund it yourself. And just and, change and the entire really that's funded. what other provinces have done. Sure. And, and really, um, the other thing I think should be pointed out is, 
you know, if you want that public funding, you know, read the blogs and read the Twitter, you know, skate that's on on there. I don't think Bishop Henry has done himself favors about um, getting people excited about giving um, public money to what Bishop Henry seems to want is a, you know, private institution. I also think he's, he's in the minority of people who believe what he does. I mean, I, I think it's pretty rich to hold up that this is the Catholic view. What, you yeah. know, claiming yeah. almost claiming to say one billion people worldwide agree with me or on my side when poll numbers in Alberta and certainly if you asked students how they felt about the issue they would probably sing from a different uh, oh uh, yeah sing from a different hymn book if I may <laughs> use the pun um, but but the question I have though is it worse then I mean if we were to completely defund various forms of education and effectively take Alberta education's hand out of the mix would we have a whole new set of problems. Well, I think that's something that's a whole different debate, really. I, I think that's something you should bring in the education minister on, and you know, Alberta has to, you know, have a discussion about that. Um, that is well beyond a debate on whether or not respectful policies in schools should occur, or well beyond whether or not GSAs should occur in schools. But, but I think what GSAs and this whole respectful debate is, it's pointing toward the issue is that is that the Alberta Constitution um, that um, has given Catholic schools this um, particular right, um, it's getting a lot of people to actually now question that. Um, so, um, you know, I think if um, Bishop Henry wants to be careful, he needs to use his words um, carefully about this whole subject because it's leading to something else very quickly. Well, and there are some inflammatory claims. I mean, first and foremost, the fact that, that he claims that there's totalitarianism in Alberta. Obviously, your organization is, is keenly interested in, in the rights and freedoms we enjoy, particularly freedom of religion. Do you see any of those rights as, as being threatened by any of this? No, I, I, I see somebody um, losing a debate. So, so, I mean, you're journalists. You, you understand how debate works. And, and when you start throwing around name-calling like that, it really points to the whole idea that um, you're losing the debate and, and you're now needing to rely on uh, throwing big words around to try to win the debate because you're losing the rational side of the debate. And, and if you look at, you know, the, you know, the history of, you know, GSAs and, the, you know, the debate that really has been going back and forth um, about this issue um, in schools, the, the rational debate side really says that, you know, um, when you start thinking of this whole issue about protecting kids in schools, um, about ensuring that mature minors are able to make their own decisions, about ensuring that uh, uh, when we, you know, do have expression of freedom of religion, it doesn't go beyond the whole idea of harming others. But when you start actually looking at the rational arguments, you know, it, it really is fairly clear that respectful policies and GSAs in schools are really not a scary thing in schools. All right. Well, people can uh, read more at rmcla.ca. Kelly, thanks so much for joining us here this morning. Appreciate yeah. it. Thank you for your time. You have a wonderful day. All right. You too. There you go. Kelly Ernst, president of the Rocky Mountain Civil Liberties Association. Uh, their response to, to Bishop Henry. Uh, CalgaryDiocese.ca is their website. I mean, you can read Bishop Henry's letter, which is titled Totalitarianism in Alberta. Right out of the gate, he says, it saddens me to say, but totalitarianism is alive and well in Alberta. Is it really? Let's start at the red line, shall we? Uh, we got to take a break right here.
We'll have more thoughts on this matter, and we're going to open the phone lines to you as well, 974-8255. Roger Kincaid, Rob Breckenridge, Morning Talk for Calgary on News Talk 770. Right, welcome back, Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Uh, coming up after 12 o'clock, we're going to talk about playgrounds, an interesting new approach to redesigning playgrounds, reintroducing unstructured play, maybe making playgrounds, uh, dare I say, maybe even a little more dangerous. Awesome, right? Within reason. Broken sure. glass everywhere. <laughs> is that what they're thinking? That's <laughs> not what they're thinking. Uh, well, we'll find out. Uh, we're also going to talk about beer. Why, why is everyone getting so excited about sour beer? Sounds like something you don't want to drink. But apparently you really do. What if it's on the shelf next to, like if you're a dilettante or you're not a beer drinker, and it's on the shelf next to all of the other non-sour beers, how does it get a market edge? That's what I want to know. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's see here. Sesame Street. Uh, this is this is Sesame Street's an anomaly to me. And if you're a parent, I guess it's a case of the comfort, nostalgia, you know, uh, things that you had when you were a kid but that they've really worked the brand and the marketing to, to update it and make sure that it's it's relevant for today and it's also uh, uh, in on different media for kids today. Like there's well, sure. tablet apps like they crazy for this. Yeah. Sesame Street was created in um, like the late 60s, early 70s. Was mm-hmm. it like 69 that, that uh, Sesame Street? I mean, it's... It's been around a long time, well over 40 years, and so obviously it needs to to update. The Sesame Street that was on the air in 1970, it's going to frighten children today. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, so they've been brilliant in in updating it and modernizing it, but still keeping it true to what it was supposed to be. Something educational, something kids could relate to, something that spoke to their their surroundings. And it, it always had kind of that focus. And this is where this conversation becomes interesting, because I, I think the initial intent of Sesame Street, and they've tried to hold true to it, was that it was intended more so for, like, inner city kids. Right. Uh, kids that, that maybe didn't have the same kind of advantages before going to school, the kids from, from wealthier families did. And this was meant to try to help fill that void because kids could just turn on their TVs and and learn something from it. Yeah, and there's also, like, they just piled on the diversity. I mean, the actors on the show came from various racial uh, and cultural backgrounds for sure. But then also you had, like, a frog hanging out with a pig who was talking to whoever Bert and Ernie are. And everyone is a different color. There's a giant bird in this mix, a guy who lives in a garbage can that David Chappelle very wisely points out. This was kind of the worst messaging in the whole show. Get a job, you grouch. <laughs> like, they're so rude to the homeless guy all the time. Man, he's a real grouch. Well, maybe oh, if someone would invite him in for a meal, things would change. So now Sesame Street is on HBO. Yeah. And so that changes the the way in which people access it, obviously. And it sounds like the show is going to change uh, under HBO guidance. So does Sesame Street start to lose what it is? Let's bring Jamie Green into this conversation now. Uh, from the Roarbots.com. Uh, also a contributor to the Geek Dads Network and host of the GBB podcast. Jamie Green, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So what's the deal with Sesame Street going to HBO? Is this uh, a for-profit endeavor, or is there some kind of, is there something behind it that we don't understand? Uh, really what, it, what this is, is it's a way for Sesame Street to survive. Um, it, it, it's 
stemmed from financial trouble that uh, PBS has been going through for several years now. Sesame Workshop itself um, has been losing money year over year to the tune of millions. Um, and so they had been actively looking for a, a way to change the way that they were doing business in order to survive and not just lay off everybody and, and sort of close up shop, um, which is something that's hard for them to do, understandably. This is and after 45 years, and uh, it's become, you know, an institution on television and for, you know, early childhood education. Um, so they, from what I understand, they, they went around and they, they talked to um, a lot of different potential buyers, and HBO was really the, the buyer that really understood the need for the show to stay um, on PBS, to, to have a, a joint organization that the show could be on HBO to, as, as a first run, Syndic- uh, not syndication, but to, to be first run on HBO. And then the way that it's going to work is that there's a nine-month delay. So nine months later, these, this new season will eventually air on PBS. So HBO had that understanding and that willingness um, to let it continue on in somewhat the same fashion that it has been for 45 years. Yeah, which uh, yeah, that's important to know. And uh, it's it's like nine months or something after the fact. It is yes, it's a nine the episodes delay. that air on HBO and then later on they can air on PBS. So PBS isn't yeah. isn't losing Sesame Street necessarily. They're not losing Sesame Street, and actually in this nine months they will still be showing PBS and PBS Kids will still have the ability to show Sesame Street. They'll just be able to show, you know, last season or the season before. They're not going to be able to show this current season that's premiering on HBO for another nine months, but they still have access to the back catalog. Okay. Now, it's interesting. You talk about the money they were losing because I, I was always under the impression, and maybe it used to be the case and isn't anymore, that the Children's Television Workshop, which created Sesame Street and produced Sesame Street, that they made a lot of money. That They made a lot of money off selling the Tickle Me Elmo and all the, the merchandise and all the DVDs and video, that it was a, a money-making operation. That is true, um, and it, that is how they had survived for a long time, but that money has been slowly disappearing. And a big reason for that is because of the way that kids and families consume media today. You know, it used to be they would, you know, switch on the TV, watch Sesame Street on, on PBS, and, you know, if they liked a certain show or a certain special that came out, they'd go out and they'd buy the, you know, the VHS or the DVD, and then they'd, they'd buy the toy. and they buy, you know, the tie-in books. So they had a lot of licensing through the years. But the, because of the way that um, kids access television, you guys just had a big conversation about Netflix, kids will watch Netflix on these on-demand platforms where they just turn it on and instantly they'll have an entire season to watch. And so they'll just watch it, no commercials, um, and they can go on YouTube. Sesame Workshop, Sesame Street has a very vibrant YouTube channel where they put a lot of content on there. So because of that, there's really no reason for families to go out and buy the DVD anymore. Um, and it's sort of a slippery slope from there, and that the merchandise sales have, have been slowly going downhill. So the money that had been coming in from merchandising and product sales has been slowly drying up. Um, private donations, you know, viewers like you, in quotes, which you always heard, yeah. um, those donations are, are slowly going away. I mean, this, this came in, this was a big factor in the most recent U.S. presidential election. That's it right. Was yeah. a, you know, it was a big internet thing that went around with Mitt Romney saying, I love Big Bird. But <laughs> the fact of the matter is that PBS really does depend on, on government subsidies, and it does really depend on private donations, all of which are very fickle, and they can't rely on them. 
Um, and Sesame Street is an incredibly expensive show to produce. Um, and the fact of the matter is, at the end of the day, if HBO hadn't stepped in, no one is willing to say that Sesame Street would have been pulled, would have been canceled. No one has said that publicly. But if, um, if, if this came down to Sesame Street on HBO or no Sesame Street at all, I'm very happy to see Sesame Street make the move to HBO. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's, all, it's funny. You mentioned that viewers like you thing. I always felt like I was really ripping them off when I'd see that at the end. <laughs> and viewers <laughs> like you. Watching and not <laughs> yeah, I felt like it was like when you put the empty envelope in the collection plate at church. You know, they'll never know. <laughs> well, it's funny because they did work in. I, I don't know how much this is worth. Maybe PBS does it on other shows. Because I remember when my kids were younger and we'd still watch it on PBS, you'd see at the end of the show, you know I mean? Uh, this uh, episode of Sesame Street brought to you yeah. by like Beaches Family Resort. So those are always right at the end of the show, and they just have a couple thrown in there. Was that really? Did that really amount to, to much in the way of revenue? It, it, obviously, it was enough to keep the show going. Um, I, I think I'm not sure specific numbers. Um, I think a large majority of their of their funding came from, um, you know, the public television kitty. You know, it wasn't it wasn't um, Children's Television Workshop or Sesame Workshop. It wasn't specific to their budget. I think a lot of it came from the public, from the PBS budget. Um, but I think private foundations that were um, giving donations, I think, is really what kept them on the air. Okay, so how did how did they ever make it though before all of the the DVDs? I know you kind of just answered that question, but uh, like, what was their rise to popularity? I guess in the '70s that allowed them to uh, become a successful brand and the brand that I think we they all still know. had toys, right? But like, why why is that model? Why is is that not something that they can go back to now? Well, because they didn't have DVDs, right? Like they didn't have the media. Like they've got more access to more media platforms right now. So I, just, yeah, I don't they, understand. I mean, it. they had. They had books and records back then, and, and that was a big thing. Um, I, I think the biggest difference between then and now, though, is, is just how crowded the marketplace is. Right. Yeah. You know, back in the early 70s, it was Mr. Rogers and Sesame Street, and that was pretty much it. Um, there wasn't a lot of competition for eyeballs, for little kids especially. Um, and now, you know, you can't, you can't turn around online or on Netflix or Amazon or however you watch your TV um, without finding three or four new shows a week. I mean, the children, preschool especially now, preschool programming is big, big business. And Sesame Street is not the only player in, in the field. They're the most established and they're the most recognized. Um, but, you know, kids, parents will happily let their kids sit down and watch, you know, SpongeBob or Dora the Explorer or, you know, whatever the latest preschool show is. Um, Sesame Street, I think, has fallen into the trap of being considered kind of old school. Um, you know, it's what parents grew up on, so they, they have a, a lot of nostalgia attached to it. Um, and even the, it's kind of a, a, a catch-22 because the, the perception is that, oh, it's, it's Sesame Street. It's been around forever. What mm -hmm. could it possibly talk, talk, talk to my kids about in 2016? But yet when it makes the move to HBO, People are, you know, screaming about the changes and how dare you change Sesame Street. So it's the kind <laughs> yeah, of that's true, right, they, yeah. they they can't go either way. Without, yeah. You know, they can't make the changes and they can't stick with the status quo. I wonder if they have to do more of that stuff, like uh, a Muppet with AIDS or a Muppet whose dad is in jail, just so that they can kind of keep that that uh, that headline uh, that sort of newsmakeriness about them, right? Yeah, I mean that's good for publicity. But a few years ago, the show did make a 
a very conscious shift away from they, – they shifted their target demographic. For years and years, Sesame Street was really targeting like the, the, the five to eight-year-old. Um, and within the last, I don't know, five to ten years, they consciously made the shift down to preschoolers. Mm-hmm. So the show, if you, were, if you were to watch it today – is very different on many levels from the show that we watched when we were kids, but most noticeably is that it's, it's really targeting preschoolers. So it's, it's really putting in a, um, much more of an emphasis on, on the letters and the numbers and simple counting and shapes and colors and, and a lot of the, you know, the social and emotional um, aspects that are um, big in educational theory right now. Um, those are the things that are being stressed as opposed to some of the larger issues that were being um, taking the forefront, you know, in the early 70s or 80s. Like, is it appropriate for two men the ages of Bert and Ernie to live together in bachelorhood? <laughs> it's well, like the Joey We don't Chandler. know what their ages Chandler. are, really. <laughs> we, right, we don't know their ages. And it took us a while, too, to, to clue into the fact that maybe just a diet of 100% cookies is not healthy. <laughs> It is not healthy. I mean, he still Cookie Monster still eats cookies, but um, he has a the focus has shifted to you know cookies are are sometimes food, yeah, right. exactly. and he likes to eat other things that are healthy now. Well, that's <laughs> the thing, and they, they can't get rid of Cookie Monster because as much as the nostalgia can work against them, I mean, it's a double edged sword, and and you, you, they they still need to trade on that. that that's still an advantage to Sesame Street. Absolutely, and they're they're not. They haven't gotten rid of any of those classic characters. One of the the big complaints that I've been seeing online is that, you know, a lot of these classic characters are going to disappear. Um, And it is true that some of them are taking a backseat to other characters. Um, One of the biggest changes, which we haven't mentioned yet for the move to HBO, is that shows are now 30 minutes long. They're only half an hour as compared to what they they had been an hour for, you know, four decades. Um, And so you can't fit as much into 30 minutes as you could before. I actually think that this is a very good change for the show. I think it's a lot more streamlined. Um, it's much more focused, mm-hmm. and there's, there's not as much, quote-unquote, fluff that will, you know, distract kids. Are they or, getting rid of know. Elmo's World? That, that was really terrible. <laughs> well, you know, Elmo's World, Elmo's World hasn't been on the show in about five years. Oh, really? They oh, cut see, it, I'm they cut it in 2009. However, I've, wa- I've seen the first two episodes that premiered this Saturday. Elmo's World is back. Uh, is it really? I'm sorry to say. Well, no, I mean, I, I say that, but when, I remember when my kids were three, four, right? They loved it. They loved yeah. it. So, But I mean, getting back to the characters, you know, from what I could see in the first couple episodes, Elmo and Abby Cadabby, who's the fairy, are really the stars of this show. Yeah. They're the ones who, at least in the first two episodes, take center stage. All of the other classic characters are there. You see you know, Grover, Oscar, Big Bird, Bert and Ernie, um, the two-headed monster, the count. They're all there. They all have a part. They're not major parts, um, but uh, Elmo and Abby Cadabby um, That's are the new really Kermit. the What about, what about the, the humans? <laughs> like, I, I, I had the chance to interview uh, Gordon a few years ago. I forget it. Roscoe, something is his name. Roscoe Orman. Yeah. Like, are, are these people still around? They are still around. Um, the woman who plays Maria, Sonia Manzano, actually retired at the end of last season. That's right. She yeah. is not returning. All of the other um, human characters, the human actors who have who were there last season, are returning. But again, because of the new format, there seems to be less a less of a place for them. Um, the first couple episodes. Only um, a couple human characters showed up. The first episode had a new human character. 
Um, and the second episode had Alan, who's currently running Hooper's store. But that's it. And they had very small walk-on parts. Right. Um, they're not an emphasis of the show at all. They have to get the person who played um, <clears throat> Katy Perry. they got to get that person back on the show. She was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Jamie, we got to let it go at that. Thanks so much for your time today. Thanks so much. All right, take care. That's Jamie Green. He is uh, he is uh, from the Roarbots.com uh, website, contributor to the Geeks and Dads Network, and uh, host of the Great Big Beautiful podcast. Yeah, that was a fun conversation. I, I love the, the Sesame Street nostalgia. Let's take a break here. We'll come back. Some some more thoughts on this. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. I don't know what this song is, but I've got something better lined up here. Let's see if you can spot this. Oh, I love it. Oh, my God. Yeah. This is a great song. Instantly. Sound like the very first note of that. Oh, my goodness. I can visit, like, the pinball, the animation. Of, and that takes me back. Remember the first time I saw this, I went online to uh, lyrics.com. <laughs> and uh, that's all I got. Uh, oh, Someone else texted say, remember there was a show similar to Sesame Street called The Electric Company at oh, Morgan yeah. Freeman. I remember The Electric George Company. Carlin, right? Oh, for sure. And they used to have little Spider-Man shorts uh, on, on that show. I totally remember The Electric Company. I don't know where that went away. Are we talking about what we would consider a golden age of children's entertainment? Because I look at some of the shows right now, and, and it's like... I think that Teletubbies was the first time I thought to myself, you kids are really not getting the same experience that we got. Like, Friendly Giant and Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers was amazing because every show, it'd be like, oh, let's go see how telephone wires are made. Like, <laughs> All right, why not? That's a good show. No, look, I don't know. I don't think most kids today know what the Teletubbies are. I don't even, I don't know, is that even still around? No, but now it's like Dora or Caillou. Yeah, Dora. Right? Whereas Dora you got this- annoying, but I mean, there was some... I think Dora had a positive impact. The thing I liked about about shows like Friendly Giant and Mr. Rogers is that those were human beings. And so, like, you had adults interacting with children. And Mr. Mm-hmm. Dress Up, same thing, right? You had adults interacting with children. And so, I don't know, I just sort of seemed really reasonable that sometimes an, an older person is going to look at a kid and go, do you want some ice cream? You don't have to run and hide behind your mom's leg. Well, what's <laughs> funny is... Like, my kids are 12 and 9. If I put in, like, the Elmo's World DVD that they watched when they were four, they'd run screaming out of the room. Right. We have the DVD at home of the 1978 Christmas Eve on Sesame Street special, and we watch it every year. We watched it again this year. I love watching it. I remember watching it as a kid, and I love watching it again. And they still like what? The Cookie Monster like, eats Santa the typewriter, Claus. tries to call Santa Claus. <laughs> And, but it's it's so well done, and, yeah. and it's a, a different kind of Sesame Street. And you know, maybe three year olds, as as you know, the guest said, that wouldn't be into that. But didn't it sort of stun you maybe a little bit when he talked about how how uh, Sesame Street is now way more about the letters, the numbers, and the shapes, as opposed to uh, more of like the social stuff, more of the uh less than just like identifying shapes on a screen but more about like how people interact and what sorts of fun things people do together but, I, but some of the letter and number stuff was always there like that 12 song is about counting to 12 what? and the, the whole sesame you know the count the character the count was always there and okay. you know sesame street brought to you by the letter f i mean it was always 
I don't. I thought that was always part of it. That song, that song we just played, is about playing pinball. I don't know where you got the counting out of it. That's about spending your pinball time wizard. in an arcade, pumping quarters <laughs> <laughs> into uh, into a body table. All right, we got to take a break here. We'll come back, set up our final hour for you. It's uh, Kincaid and Breckenridge News Talk seven seventy.